0: Block Talk Radio Choices, decisions Frustrations and Pain Knowing I'm going To forget her someday While I still can I'll challenge All my loved ones Every friend To look inside Their hearts and i
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay. And I'm also the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company um, that provides multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We truly believe at Alzheimer's Speaks that by sharing knowledge and having just these everyday conversations like we're going to have today on the show about life with dementia, that we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and empower people to live purpose-filled lives. Together, I know that we can understand exactly um, what is going on out in the public. There are so many people hidden away that aren't talking about this disease, and it's so important that we're able to support them and understand this in a better fashion, and that's why I love doing these shows. And I know that we're having an effect because we were honored by Dr. Oz and ShareCare as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, which was just a phenomenal recognition. And that was done because people like you out there listening feel and see the value of these conversations. And you are liking the program. You're going to the Alzheimer's Speaks website and sharing Um, All of the knowledge base that we have there from our dementia chats to our blog to the radio to the resource directory. And people are are really starting to come together and collaborate. So I want to thank each and every one of you. Um, If you haven't taken the time to like us or share this episode, I would really appreciate you doing that. Um, Liking it so it goes to Facebook, sharing it on your Google Circles. You can email it out to your sphere. You can hot link um, any of our free information um, into your newsletters or send it out to family or put on Facebook anytime. That's what it's here for. Um, We really want to raise awareness and we want to give voice to everyone dealing with this disease. We also like to have you join the conversation and you can easily do that today by utilizing your chat box. And I will be monitoring that throughout the show and pulling, um, pulling questions and comments in as we go. Um, the other thing is you can call and uh, live to the show at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Now, before I introduce um, our first fabulous guest, and we have two wonderful women with us today that are are going to give us, uh, I think, great knowledge and insight into the decision-making process when it comes to dementia. And they're coming from a couple of different angles, which I think is um, even better for us as listeners and I always consider myself a listener because every show I always learn something new. Um, I I'm just feel so honored to be in this position to <clears throat> to be able to help connect the dots out there because there's so much great information to be had. Um, but I would like to highlight uh, just a couple of companies that people always are asking for resources on. And first is Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the organization of all the Alzheimer's associations throughout the world. And so they're the ones to go to to find out what organization is closest to you, what uh, Alzheimer's Association. They also pulled together the World Report. They're in on the G8 meetings, um, Mark Wartman, the executive director just does a fabulous job and they have a big conference coming up here in the beginning of May uh, that will be I'm sure we'll be getting some updates from him on the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation is one of the oldest organizations um, and they take a holistic approach um, to uh, living with dementia and I, I they're just, again, great, great resources, um, lots of wonderful educational opportunities there as well. And then for those dealing uh, and living with Lewy body, you don't want to forget about that particular association because Lewy body is a form of dementia It's just a little bit different, has a little bit tw- of a twist, just like the Association for the Frontal Temporal Uh, degeneration. And, um, you know, any of these can be found on our websites along with the National Aphasia Association. Sometimes people have questions about how people and um, that's a great, great resource for you there. If you're looking for a clinical trial, the Alzheimer's Studies has one on Tau and they've just rolled out a new one for um, FTD. <clears throat> so again, frontal temporal lobe. And so you can check them out um, on the web just at www.alzheimerstudies or you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook. And then people are always asking me for Kind of social activities. Um, what can they do? How can they how can they engage people? And so um, I love Choral Health with Music First. Um, Music First is actually a, a portable app that you can get, and they really do prescriptions. Um, For music that can change our mood and it's pretty fascinating and pretty fabulous the way it works. So I would highly, highly recommend checking out Coral Health and that's C-O-R-O Health. Um, Puzzle With Me was developed by um, Jane and those are Smaller pieced puzzles, uh, or fewer pieced puzzles, but larger in size, and more age-appropriate, they are a wonderful resource, Um, and the Jiminy Wicket program is something that can be done intergenerational, that is a croquet game. Um, that's absolutely fabulous. And I would be amiss if I didn't mention the <clears throat> the Purple Angel Project, uh, which was started by Norms McNamara over in the U.K., and that is getting great, um, great leverage um, starting here now, finally, in the States. So very excited about that. Um, on an upcoming episode, we are also going to be having with us um, – Yuda Lugovig, and I'm very excited to have her because she is going to be talking about a brand new book that she just published called The Alzheimer's Creativity Project. And it's it's quite uh quite a brilliant book with lots of um just fabulous choices for people uh to make and and great, great ideas there. So let me go ahead and introduce our first guest. Stephanie Erickson is the director of the Erickson Resource Group and has uh, over 18 years experience in in the geriatric field as a social worker. She works with seniors living um, at home and also those that are placed in care facilities. Um, They could be in a hospital or even living with family. And that right there says a lot in terms of you know, where do we live and how do we live? Things change all the time, and we're going to get into some discussions about how that impacts us. Her specialty is in assessing cognitive capacity for decision-making um, and management of finances for court proceedings, and that is something that comes up all the time. People just struggle with that. Um, How do I know if they're competent or not? Stephanie has designed webinars and toolkits to provide information and workshops for families and caregivers to really manage the many tasks um, involved when giving care. She presents at national and international conferences on a variety of senior issues, and she's also currently writing a book to assist families in preparing for the aging process. She has her master's um, in social work and is licensed both in Quebec and in California. So welcome, Stephanie. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Lori. Well, thanks for, thanks for making the show. I'm excited to have you on. You know, it's, it's uh, an interesting, I think, topic that we have today, decision-making when dementia hits, um, because everybody struggles with who's competent and when. So can you tell me, how, how did you get interested in, in helping uh, seniors and then those with memory loss to begin with? Well, I I initially set out to actually work with children when I was doing my master's degree, funny enough, and I did that for some years, and then sort of fell into a palliative care social worker position, and as such, I mean, of course, I had younger um, patients that I was working with, but most of those who ended up in palliative care were older, and I began to just feel very passionate about working with seniors. I saw them as a very vulnerable population, I saw a lot of family dynamics and conflicts coming out at the time that someone was at uh, the end stage of their life, and I just decided I wanted to pursue working with seniors, and then about 12 years ago, I started working uh, in the domain of assessing cognitive capacity, and I've, just, I've been doing that ever since. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad you made the shift. That's a yeah. that's wonderful. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is a need and a tremendous hot hot topic out there. That's that's for sure. Um, can you uh, tell us? Um, do all those that suffer from some type of uh, form of dementia do they lose their ability to to make decisions? Eventually they do. It is a progressive and a permanent illness, so eventually those uh, capacities are lost, but not, not in the beginning stages, and I think that's where a lot of the stigma and assumptions lie, is that once we're diagnosed with, let's say, Alzheimer's disease or any of the types of dementia, that immediately we can no longer make decisions for ourselves and take care of ourselves, and that is just not true. It is progressive over time. And that, that, that's where I think the challenges lie in terms of deciding when is the moment where that shift, that tipping point happens and the person has gone from capable of making decisions to not capable. Yeah, that's a tough one. I typically see that, you know, families in particular and doctors tend to make that decision when a crisis hits. Is that what you normally see too? Yeah, well, yes, and usually it's because when a crisis hits, it's because the person has been un- unable to manage something and it sends everybody into a panic, whether it be, you know, the community systems, the hospital systems, families, physicians, et cetera. But that's still not an indication that the person is totally unable to make decisions. It might just mean there is a particular facet of their life that is impacting their decision-making. So, for example, if someone has really poor, uh, poor short-term memory, and they're not taking their medication as uh, recommended as prescribed, that can lead to um, less ability to make decisions because they're having more medical crises and more variability in their cognition. And so if we can just manage that piece of the person's life, you can sort of stabilize the decision-making, and they may be able to still retain some of those capacities for a prolonged period. And you know, I, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I think so many of us caregivers out there, you know, we want it's an all or nothing because it's easier for us to manage that way. Um, and and I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's just me, but I guess I see that a lot out there. No, I, I think you're right, Laurie. I think many families struggle with the all or, or nothing position, and I get it. As a clinician and as a, as a daughter, I understand uh, what that means. Um, but when you look at it, when you remove yourself as a professional and your ethical obligations in protecting a person's right to represent themselves, you can't necessarily look at it as black and white in terms of the actual evaluation piece. That being said, my recommendations and my findings are based on the lowest level of functioning. So by that, I mean if there's variability in the functioning, I'm going to make my recommendations based on that lowest level, on their worst moments. Because with dementia, you have to assume that at any moment, those worst moments present. And so you have to really make your final recommendations based on that lowest level, even if at other times they're functioning at a higher level. And do you see a lot of kickback when you evaluate in that fashion? Um, Kickback you mean from families or professionals? Well, I would say more, probably more from the person with dementia. I think I, I can see where the families and professionals can understand that, um, but I'm just wondering, uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong in that perception. Um, but I, I could see, I could see maybe where, you know, someone say, "Well, don't judge me because I screwed up once," you know, um, you know, give me another, give me another chance type deal on those decision yeah. making. Yeah, I mean, most of the time when I, you know, most of the files that I'm involved with. Uh, the person who's suffering with the disease lacks insight and judgment, and so they are resistant to what it is that I'm suggesting just by nature of their disease. They're just not, you know, physiologically able to understand and retain the information that I'm telling them because it's complex um, and it's variable. But I don't see a lot of overall resistance from my clients, meaning the seniors, because most of the families that I work with. Um, have great relationships amongst themselves, not always, but most. And usually the senior trusts the kids, and even if they're saying, I don't need help, I'm fine, still within that conversation there are some statements of implicit trust with their children to represent them if they needed representation. Okay. And can you tell us um, how, how exactly do you measure, you know, decision-making um, capacity for somebody who's got, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia? It is such a complex process, Lori. Um, I use a combination of, of factors. So one of the things I do, I do administer some very basic standardized measures. I'm sure the listeners have heard of and perhaps observed during um, a session with a physician, a a Full scene Mini-Mental or maybe a MOCA MOCA evaluation. Um, I will ask for medical records, which might have some additional standardized testing that was done by perhaps a psychiatrist or an occupational therapist. So I look at the standardized measures. But really most of what I'm evaluating is based on my interview, because I find that um, in order to delve into the layers of somebody really understanding uh, what it is that I'm evaluating and, and the particular, uh, I guess you could say, content that I'm evaluating, the interview is paramount for me. That's really what I rely most of my evaluation on is that interview. I do, though, have to look at standardized measures and somehow try and make a connection between um, the results of those measures and how they will impact a person's everyday life.
0: And so thirdly,
1: have-
0: I... Oh, go sorry, ahead. I'm sorry.
1: It- it's okay. And thirdly... Um, I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, The third point (laughs) that I evaluate uh, is uh, the family's input. I find that essential because often my client is saying to me, oh, yeah, 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 I'm managing my money and I'm writing checks and I pay my electric bill on time every month. And I see in the corner the family rolling their eyes and they have evidence of, of actually the complete opposite. So I have to integrate the family's feedback as well. Okay. So let me ask you this. You had mentioned a, a couple of tests, and not all of our listeners, um, you know, have been in, in the trenches with this. Can you, can you explain what those tests are, the, not just the acronyms, but, um, you know, what their title is and then why, why you use them, what they're like in terms of sure. the testing process. Yeah, no problem. Uh, A full steam mini-mental examination is based on a 30-point scale and it evaluates your orientation to time and to place. It it evaluates your um, immediate recall and then a delayed recall. So that's things like please repeat these three words, and then, you know, five minutes later, you're asking them to repeat it again. So the first would be the immediate recall. The second is a delayed recall, and that has to do with your memory. And then there's an attention and concentration piece. And for any of the listeners who have observed, that's the spell world backwards or subtract in increments of seven. So that's testing someone's ability to sustain attention to a task. And then there's a piece that's about language. Um, and, and the a person's ability to uh, r- repeat a verbal command, follow a written command um, and to repeat sentences. And there's also a sentence that you write in a constructional praxis, which is kind of like a diagram that you have to reprodu- reproduce. And then again, the score is based on 30. Okay. And was there another test you had talked about too? There. There is. There's one called the MOCA. Um, the MOCA, I find, I have to say that a lot of people don't use that. and There's some lots of people who don't find it to be an accurate uh, an accurate test, and they don't really like it. I really like it, actually, personally. I find that it really helps to differentiate um, capacity for someone who sort of seems to be in the more gray zone area. A Fulstein, that first uh, Test that I was referencing, is much easier for people. Um, so someone on a full steam might get, let's say, 25 on 30, and then you do a, a MOCA, which is the second um, exam, and I'll give you the details of that in a moment, and they'll score a 10 out of 30 on that. It's much harder. So that, there's a section, five points of it have to do with measuring executive functioning. So that's problem solving, organization, um, and planning. And the the first exam I talked about doesn't have a measure for that. So that's why it's a bit harder. And also the parts that measure language in the MOCA, the second test that I'm discussing, are much harder than they are in the first. So I find that um, those that score higher in the Folstein will definitely score lower in the MOCA. And it gives me a bit more information. OK, wonderful. Thank you for, for explaining that. Um, how how do you, you know, I guess, hook up with families or professionals in need of your service? How do they find you and, and you know? Yeah, well, some find my website. They're just looking for a private social worker <laughs> just find me online. Um, but most of my referrals come through attorneys uh, who are uh, prospective proceeding with a legal procedure to deem somebody incapacitated to make decisions for themselves, and they need an expert to do that evaluation, the psychosocial piece of that evaluation. And so most of my referrals come from attorneys, um, and there are some within hospital and community systems that also refer to me as well. Okay. Wonderful. Um, And now, are you just licensed in in, in two areas, in Quebec and California, is that correct? That's right. Okay. Okay. So, if somebody was out of your area, could you still talk to them, but just not actually do? Could you consult at all on any level with them? I guess would be the question. Or, or do you just specifically work in those two areas? Well, every every state and every province has their own internal licensing procedures, and you have to be licensed to practice in any state or province in which you're working. So it's the same thing for a physician who, let's say, lives in New York. Someone from, you know, Wisconsin can't call that physician and say, hey, can you provide treatment for me because, you know, he he or she is not licensed in that state. Certainly, if any of your listeners want to call me and just bounce some situations off of me, I'm happy to, you know, provide suggestions and things like that. But I can't practice anywhere except for the two areas in which I'm licensed. Okay. That's what I thought and I just wanted to be be clear on that so that we weren't confusing anybody on that. Um how how do you kind of help guide uh family members to ensure that somebody with dementia is still included in the decisions and and still making sure that they're safe? Yeah, I mean, for those um seniors who have had the foresight Uh, and the knowledge to prepare a legal document, such as a living will, and they name a health care surrogate or sometimes a decision maker. I mean, it's uh, different terms in different states and provinces, Um, but you know what I'm saying, naming someone to represent them. Uh, It's always important that I am speaking with this person about their responsibilities and about their role, and we just have a very open discussion about it, and I... Remind them that they are making decisions that the senior themselves would have made, so it 's not about their own wishes and their own values it's about the seniors' values and that 's part of my evaluation is just to ensure that the person that's chosen as the decision maker is in fact appropriate okay now, one of the things that I hear screaming in the back of my head is you, you refer to seniors, and there's a lot of people with early onset out there that you know always kind of bring that um to the forefront. So you don't have to be a senior to need this type of, of guidance in um in terms of, of dealing with decision making because we're getting people in their thirties and forties that are getting diagnosed with, with dementia as well. And um so again, uh, Stephanie could easily help in that in that realm um as well. You know, with Yeah, sorry. yeah sorry about that, Laura. You're right. I, I say senior only because probably 95% of those that come to me are over 70 um mm-hmm. but it's true obviously I've dealt with people that have early onset uh uh diagnoses as well it's just it's it's uh, less common obviously Mhm yeah Yep. And, um, you know, and and there's more and more people getting diagnosed all the time. But I think, you know, um, and again, you deal with people just not with dementia, I would imagine as well. Um, But dementia is probably one of the the more prevalent um, issues um, facing people, I think, out there today. Um, How do you help resolve conflict? Because I have to imagine that there's conflict in terms of dealing with families. There is a lot of conflict, and it usually is between the children, the adult children who um, all of those childhood arguments come to the forefront. So you would probably not be surprised to hear that I have adult children. And, again, I'm, I'm speaking more to seniors because that's the majority of the population I work with, so their adult children would be anywhere between 30 and, let's say, 60. Um, but you would be not be surprised to hear, you know, I'm hearing the story about how my sister, she always got everything she wanted from my mom, she always treated her special, and now here she is thinking that she should be in charge. Um, I hear lots of these childhood uh, family issues come out at the time when the person that they love is losing their abilities to take care of themselves. Um, your question was, how do I resolve that conflict? I can't resolve it. It's been, it's been in existence for years, and I can certainly offer some advice and guidance. Um, what I try and do is always get people to align themselves on the reason why we're all working together is it's about the person who's been diagnosed. It's about the person who's suffering with the illness and trying to find, to, to help people find that common ground and focus their conversations about that person and that person's care that person's symptoms, that person's risks, and to try and work together more as a team in developing a plan that's about that person, not about the adult children or the other family members. Okay. And and it is interesting, um, the dynamics of the family that come into play and how it can twist and turn the road. Uh, it, it's just absolutely <laughs> amazes me yes. every single time. Now it looks like we've got somebody on the line who wants to ask a question, so I'm going to go ahead and pull them in if that's okay. Absolutely. We have a caller from a 201 number. You're live and on the air if you'd like to make a comment or if you have a question.
2: Hi, Lori. This is Michelle DeSocio.
1: Oh, hi, Michelle. How are you doing?
2: Great. How are you?
1: Very good, very good. Did you have a comment or a question you wanted to make?
2: I wanted to share something and, and add a little something. Um, as you as you know, but most don't, um, I've been walking this journey with my mother for 15 years. Um, the first five years, she was uh, misdiagnosed as bipolar and, and came to live with me. And, you know, one of the first problems she had was her checkbook and asked for help, you know, and right away we went to the bank and, you know, did the, you know, put my name on her account and her as my ward and, and, you know, and then, you know, once she couldn't write her checks anymore, she wanted her checkbook back and, you know, that presented with financial problems. Um, But like you said, when crisis happens, that's when things usually seem to take place. And... In my opinion and my experience, it's never too early, but it can be late. Uh, with mom, she was admitted to a hospital for a 19-day psych stay. We went away, and she was in unfamiliar surroundings at my capable sister's hands, but it just was unfamiliar to her. And at that point, that's where she got diagnosed. And they told her she had less than three years to live. And my mother at that time was still very cognizant of of what was going on and had a lot of lot to say and we told her right away and she expressed her wishes to us and she wanted placement. Uh and right away we just went into autopilot. I don't know how we knew what to do. We just did and we got all the financial papers together. Mom was very cooperative because it was early on in her disease and she trusted her children. And me and my sister knew our strengths. You know, she's older, but she knew I was better at the finances. She was better at other things. And mom was very cooperative. The problems we ran into were the doctors who had were wanting to place mom. Nobody wanted to sign the papers for me to get what needed to get done. Where I literally, you know, they were telling me to go back and forth. Through. You go to this doctor. No, go to that doctor. Eventually, I cornered the psychiatrist and said, look, you put her here. You wanted her to stay here. I need your help. Sign these papers. And that's how I got it done. And we always, always, always consulted Mom on any decision as long as it wouldn't hurt her.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, comments, Stephanie?
2: Yeah. Um. You, you
1: said your name is Michelle. I, I'm sorry. Did you say your yes. name is Michelle? Yes. Okay, perfect. Yes. So, Michelle, thank you. thank you for commenting. I'm really glad to hear that you and your sister were able to work together, and I love hearing that you consulted with your mother. And when I was talking about um, the importance of making sure that the family is focused on the care of the person uh, who's suffering from the illness, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about, is the consulting with that person, including them as much as possible. And I think I, one of the things that made that happen for you and your family is because of those early conversations, and that is not something that I can stress uh, strongly enough. I am passionate, and as Lori mentioned earlier, that's uh, the book that I'm writing is about the importance of early conversations, because I think it helps family members make really difficult decisions when they've had those conversations earlier on. Because as we know with dementia and its related, uh, the, the related types of dementia, personalities can definitely change. And based on what area of the brain is affected, person, people can become very uh, resistant. They can become paranoid, delusional. And if you've had those previous conversations and you know what your parent wants you to do, even if later in their disease they're resisting, you know that when they were well, they trusted you to make those decisions on their behalf. And it makes a job and the life of a caregiver just a tad bit easier knowing that they have the consent of their
2: parent when their parent was well. That's exactly what happened in our case. Me and my sister were totally against placement, totally against it. She had lived with me. My sister was more than capable of having mom and have someone live in full-time, but my mother did not want to put this on her children and put her foot down and said, I am not doing this to you. This is what I want. And we had to respect the wishes. That's
1: wonderful. Well, thank you for calling in, um, Michelle. I really appreciate that very, very much. Um, I, I have a question that I actually I, I'd like to pose to both of you before we let Michelle go. There are a lot of um, people that talk about, you know, getting the wishes in writing. Um, some do that formally, um, which is, I think, the best best route to go with a uh, elder law attorney and and so forth. Um, but some some families just you know, sit down at their table and have the discussion. And others um, actually even go to the point of either um, audio taping or videotaping what the person with dementia's wishes are. And Stephanie, I'm just going to throw out to you your thoughts on on how to document that. Uh, well, I think uh, audio taping and videotaping. I mean, those are great ideas. And I think that would help the family to be able to hear their loved one's voice or to watch their loved one to be reminded of the relationship and the trust that the person had. But in terms of uh, within the hospital setting and within institutions, et cetera, you're not going to probably get a physician to watch a video of your parent giving his or her wishes. So for me, you would still I would still recommend doing those legal documents because that's what the people who you're working with in the community are going to be asking for, is proof in writing of those wishes. So I can't stress that enough. Again, please get your uh, papers in order you know, if it's not too late to do so. Um, the other thing that I just want to mention is that having things in writing is not the same as having a, things in writing along with a discussion. Because we can read things you know, on paper, but often what happens is people will put their wishes in writing and then they just say to their family member, oh, by the way, I made a will. By the way, I made a, a power of attorney. By the way, I have a living will, and it's kept in this drawer, and this is where the key is. But there aren't any discussions, so then when it's time for the caregiver to use that document, they still don't have that internal confidence and peace of mind that they understand fully what the spirit and the intention was to those written words. So my suggestion is a written legal document in addition to a discussion would be the best, and having a video or um, uh, recording is, is great, I think, for the families to be able to revisit that. I agree. Michelle, did you, did you do a video or audio with your mom?
2: we were on uh, in crisis mode at the time, like I said, Mom was in a in a psych state um dementia was nowhere on our radar. she was only 58 years old, and this all happened within less than three weeks um and we were just like I said on autopilot. What we did have to do was have um witnesses, so we had best friends of moms come down and witness all the all the paperwork. Um and they were difficult discussions. My mother told us what she what you know, her funeral and what she wished for and me and my sister had to go and pre prearrange her funeral. You know, these mm-hmm. were the things she wanted. And we don't we didn't have it in writing, but <clears throat> I will say my mom is now seventy three and in the late stages. I know what her wishes are, they will be carried out and I will have no reservations or regrets because I know this is what mom wanted.
1: And that that is just such a relief. I know, you know, my mom just passed here, um, gosh, a month and a half ago. And to have these conversations is so important, Um, you know, throughout the disease process. Um, You know, my dad had brain cancer. and. There were times when he made some decisions that I didn't agree with, my brothers didn't agree with, but we agreed to let him make those decisions because it was a matter of, of purpose. And, you know, it's like, are they going to get hurt? Is this going to be harmful? And um, But but those can be interesting conversations, too, in terms of uh, financing. And I'm sure you'll run into those all the time, Stephanie, with because people weigh those
2: things That's out a little part, bit differently. You know, Gloria, mm-hmm. people, for people that waited too long, they they have to go to court and get guardianship or conservatorship or it's it's a nightmare for them. I mean, we did this in a matter of a couple of weeks and it was all done. And, and it's dragged out in court for, for, for months and months and months and months and they have no say anymore and there's other people involved, strangers get involved. So I can only stress that, you know, as soon as the diagnosis happens or even before if you have parents that are getting elderly or you see some kind of changes, to get on this paperwork and get it done.
1: Yeah, and I'll even uh, back that up, Michelle, with, with it's not even about if you see your parents. It's really about everybody. I mean, I'm 44, and I have my papers in order because there are also accidents and Uh, other medical crises that can happen. And for me, conversations is about, it's a continuum of conversations. It starts um, when you're a, a young child and you experience your first death of maybe a grandparent or, you know, a family friend or something, and conversations about aging begin right then. And I think if we can all work towards that as a society, it will help ease uh, the aging process for a lot of people, and hopefully it can shift our systems a bit in the way in which everybody is responding to aging and its related uh, challenges. Well, and I well, think that doing... that's a... Oh, go ahead, Michelle.
2: I just want to say you're doing great works because at the time we had no resources. We we didn't know what we were doing. We were just just following our instincts at the time. You know, this was back in 2004. And we just we didn't know what we were doing. We just just following on autopilot, like I said, and just going going with it.
1: No, well, sounds like you had good instincts, Michelle. Well, well thanks it's, again it's, for calling in. I really, really appreciate you being with us, Michelle.
2: Great talking to Lori, uh, and thank you for Stephanie and you too, Lori.
1: Okay. Bye bye. Well, it's important to hear, I think, those individual stories of, of what happens. And Michelle brought up a, a good point that, you know, if you wait on these things, all of a sudden you are going to have to go in for guardianships, and uh, that can get complicated really, really quickly. So can you tell people maybe a little bit about options in terms of this whole decision-making process, Stephanie, um, in in terms of being able to, you know, like with our Family, we went with powers of attorney, and we didn't go with the guard. You know, a full outnote conservatorship. Can you talk about the differences there? Yes, you know, in every state though, in every province, there's going to be different uh, words and terms used to describe. So I'll just mm-hmm. speak to what it's like in Quebec because that's where I'm practicing the most. Um, when someone is not able to sign a legal document anymore due to their incapacity due to their inability to fully understand and appreciate the document that's before them, the family can then apply to become the representative. Now that might be called a a guardianship, it might be called a conservatorship, it might be called a curatorship, that's the term that we use here in Quebec. So it, it goes by different names. Um, what happens, though, is that, as Michelle was mentioning, other people become involved now. Now you have those governing bodies, the curator's office, the guardian's office, the conservator's office. Now they're all getting involved in your family, uh, and your family's uh, struggles and, and, and managing what it is that you're trying to do. At least here in Quebec, it's a lot costlier to go that route than it would be on the front end to just sign the initial document. The documents that I suggest people sign when they're competent to do so is a general power of attorney, um, which is an, a document that allows their family family, or someone that they choose to manage their finances, their property, investments, their business, because, you know, some people own businesses, like, for example, myself, you know, on my power of attorney, my husband's able to manage my business, so if something happens to me, my staff still gets paid. So those are some considerations, and that's why I think it's really important that you see a lawyer uh, and, and have it done um, in that legal sense, so that there are no uh, questions about the validity of that document at any point. There's also a, something that you can sign that can be called a living will. Uh, you can name a health care surrogate. Here in Quebec, we call, the, call it a mandatory, and what you're doing is you're choosing a person to represent you in terms of your health care decisions, housing, medication, etc. So. Within a family, you can separate those things out. You can choose one person to manage your money. You can choose somebody else to make health care decisions. You could have multiple people represent you, although personally and professionally, I wouldn't recommend that. I think it causes more conflict. But with those legal documents, you can have all sorts of clauses in there to promote family harmony as well. So when you see a specialist in that area, I think it's, it's going to just help the family long-term over time in case that document needs to be utilized. I, I agree. It's, uh, it's such a complicated process when we wait too long. I mean, it's, it's complicated even when we, when we go in fresh and, and start getting our ducks in a row before we, we need them to be that formalized. But you never know when that tipping point is going to be. And with anything, it's much easier to do before a crisis hits instead of waiting until you've got that, that extra burden of, of a crisis. Um, on top of things, um, or someone that's, being hospitalized. That's right. And and Lori, I mean, all of us. It, and just take dementia out of the picture. Take health crises out of the picture. All of us make better decisions when we're not stressed. <laughs> yeah. Just in general in life. So it's so much better. And these are huge decisions that you're making. We all function better when we're not under duress. So that alone should encourage people to just get those papers done ahead of time. Yeah. Well, and, and like you had said earlier, too, I mean, things can happen at any time. And, um, you know, we focus a lot on the person with dementia, but I think, you know, I really think that that needs to start shifting, too, because we we also have to consider what, what happens to um, if something happens to the care partner. You know, then who's in charge? And, and I don't think families have that discussion until it's too late. Um, again, it's usually one person is assigned, but there's not, there isn't an overall plan. Um, you know, there isn't, uh, uh, you know, godfathers and godmothers that, you know, jump into the, jump into the step if that's your religious belief. And, and I think we need to start having more backup plans and more open discussions as to wishes and, and wants. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, with those legal documents, you can have a whole succession of people. So if you want to start with putting your spouse, that's great. Uh, and then if it, it comes time to use a document and your spouse is not capable anymore, then maybe you have a niece or a nephew, or maybe you have one of your kids, maybe you have both kids, then you can have substitutes from there and substitutes from there. It can go on and on just to ensure that there is always somebody in the family available and present to assist. Exactly, exactly. I know in in our family, um, you know, my brothers really didn't have a clue of most anything that went on. And that was more at their choice. You know, they they just, Lori's handling it. And even when I um, was out of town for my mom's death, it was my daughter who stepped up not my brothers who, you know, most people would think, well, they'd be the next in charge, but they were they were more removed than my daughter. And I think it's important to have somebody who truly understands, you know, the person with dementia um, as well, not just go through the hierarchy, which I know a lot of times is the way the decisions are made. How do you how, do you help families in terms of analyzing that, or is that not an issue, or, or maybe you believe, um, you know, hierarchy is the best route to go? Well, I think, again, it depends on when you live. I mean, if families are at the process of choosing and they're trying to evaluate how to do that, that absolutely is something that I help them with. Oftentimes when I meet with families, there's already the written document, so then there's no um, there's no variation from that document. It is what it is. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it depends on the situation that's before me. Um, But I do think it's important for families to have that discussion. I do think it's important for the person who has the illness to choose themselves who they would want and who would respect their opinion and their values the most. But, as again, within the document, you can have all of these different clauses put in there to promote family harmony. So let's say, for example... Um, I want to choose only my daughter as primary, and I want my son to be secondary. Well, maybe that's going to anger my son. Maybe he's going to think that my daughter um, influenced me to do it, or I was playing favorites, or whatever it might be. So first of all, having a discussion with my kids would help explain my choices. And then within that document, I might say to my daughter, every year she has to render a summary of my financial information to her brother or every six months, um, that it's in writing that she has to consult with him on every decision that's made. So, again, you can put clauses in there for inclusion instead of exclusion. Okay. Okay. Um, well, this has been a, a really, really helpful Helpful discussion I think to to all of us involved here in this in this topic. Um, you know we just never know what 's going to hit and when it's going to uh, when it's going to hit us. Um, how do you get um, staff, meaning medical professionals and if someone's living in a community, to really include um, the family and the resident in on uh, the decision-making or the patient? Um, you know, it, it, that is a real big struggle. Uh, inherent in all of these systems is staff turnover. So um, people don't seem very connected or committed to the agency for whom they're working. So sometimes they just kind of are going about business as usual. And because they know that they're going to be leaving or be switched to another floor or another unit, they're really not that engaged. And so they just really focus on the care at hand and they lose sight that the person that they're treating is still a human being and a person with, with family. And those family members are struggling. Um, I find that our systems treat just the patient and they're not really addressing the whole family dynamic. Again, this is something that I'm addressing in my book and I'm hoping that this helps to shift the way that we intervene as as professionals with families. Um, I mean, I do my best to advocate for families with families to get themselves included services for themselves and for the, the patient. Um, I try my best to, you know, speak directly with physicians and stuff. Unfortunately, Lori, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an uphill climb, um, but I will continue one family at a time trying to make a difference and hope that my interventions maybe um, click with a particular professional and then from that point other families will be uh, treated differently. Okay. Is there, um, is there any one or two tips that you want to give families um, before we wrap up the show here, uh, yeah, um, as if I hadn't said said it enough, uh, do your legal documents, <laughs> and uh, please have conversations. In addition to documents, having it in writing is not enough. The discussions absolutely have to come with those documents. So that would be my first tip. My second tip would be, and all these people who are listening are already, I'm sure, interested and are already advocating for the person that they love. I would suggest and advise that person any time your loved one is connected to a physician or a residence or a community agency that you make that link you yourself, the caregiver, with that professional. Make yourself known. Let that professional know that you are involved, you are monitoring, you are supervising, and you are there to be a care partner. You're not trying to tell them what to do. You're trying to partner with them to provide the best care for your loved one, and I think that will help your loved one get the best care and treatment that they certainly deserve. Wonderful. Well, Stephanie, this has just been a great, great conversation um, today. I'm just going to throw out and see if we have any other listeners that want to uh, tap into a, a comment or or pose a question here. You can uh, either use your chat box again or call in to 714-364-4757. That's 714 714- Three six four four seven five seven. We'd love to be able to answer that that call for you, that question. Um, stephanie, what is the the best contact information uh, to give people? What would you like them to have? I think probably email is the easiest. Uh, my email should I should I say it right now, Lori? Sure, sure. Okay, so my email is stephanie at ericsonresource dot com, and I will spell that. Stephanie S T E P H A N I E at E R I C K S O N R E S O U R C E dot com. Stephanie at Resource dot com, and you can also visit my uh, website. I have a blog where I post lots of these kind of topics. I write on these things often, and that's. EricksonResource.com is the the website. That's probably the easiest way for people to get in touch with me. And, of course, I will definitely respond uh, to you as soon as I, I get your message. Yeah, and I have to say your your website really has a lot of great information. If people haven't gone to EricksonResource dot com, I, I highly recommend you go. I, there's some just really nice articles and um, resources there. And looking forward uh, for your book to come out, I think it will really help a lot of people. Um, this is such a such an important topic that so many times is not discussed, and I just think that it's very critical that that we have these conversations and get people to understand the importance of planning and you know it's something i wish we would do in high school you know before the kids graduate i'd like to see people get their papers in order their powers of attorney and we just i don't know why we're so afraid of of doing that but it it would make such a big difference and i think it would also help with um and I don't know if you run into this or not, Stephanie, but I know with my own parents, even just doing the wills, everything became about end of life. And it really mm-hmm. is just the good business of living and making sure that your wishes are kept to because none of us know when the end of life is going to be. Um, and, and I, I think if we, can, if we can somehow sidestep that um, and, and remove that fear, it will be easier to engage people um yeah to do this yeah, preparation that, absolutely and uh Laurie for any of your listeners who are interested um on my website there are some worksheets there's one of the worksheet packages is called the caregiver toolkit and in there is a discussion guide for families to use to help facilitate those internal discussions either pre-preparation of documents or after the documents are made. Uh, And for any of your listeners, if you just want to contact me for email, you don't have to purchase those on my website. Just shoot me an email, and I'm happy to send you those worksheets for free um, uh, for you to use within your own families. Oh, wonderful! Well, thank you, thank you for, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been really educational. Again, you can get a hold of Stephanie Erickson at her website ericksonresource.com dot com, or you can email Stephanie at stephanie at ericksonresource dot com. Thank you so much for being part of the show and then offering offering those tools to people too. Uh, really appreciate that very much. You're welcome, Lori. Thanks for the opportunity, and you're doing good work. Thank you. uh, Okay. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk soon, okay? Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, before I pull in our next guest, I always like just to do our mid program highlights um, and let you know what Alzheimer's Speaks has been up to since uh, since last week. Um, if you missed the last show, it was called Leaving Tinkertown. What does that mean? It was a, a really interesting show with two women who had both written books um, about their family experiences, yet very different, yet similarities. And, you know, every time we hear somebody talk about their own experience, Experience, we learn um, just like with Stephanie so much so much information is offered so again you know please uh, if you haven't watched that show or listen to that show go there and and um, like it and link it out send it out to others so that they can hear the conversation as well our next show will be next Tuesday and I'm thinking about doing an open mic um, I'm still working on, on guests but I, my God is telling me that we need to do another open mic for people just to be able to have a general conversation so we'll see see what 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 my intuition guides me on that Um, we did our last dementia chats on march 25th and that was all about living safely with dementia we talked about wandering vacationing shopping um, being living safely within your own home and today at um, 3 p.m eastern time 2 central one mountain time and noon pacific time we will be doing another dementia chats again those are free webinars um, you can get to that from the website Alzheimer's speaks and um, again that's free uh, to join uh, we'd love to have you come and um, talk with our people who actually have dementia sometimes we can't ask our own family members or our clients uh, but it's easier to pose our questions to someone else, and that gives you an opportunity um, to connect also with those um, liked-minded uh, dealing with sim- similar situations. On the blog, there's some great um, articles. One is Understanding uh, mild. My- cognitive impairment in establishing community Um, that's about a conference that's coming up may 29th there's also the national summit on seniors and disabilities ministries um, and there's going to be a feature on hope for dementia which i'll be part of and that conference is may 2nd and 3rd and um, Then actually tomorrow I'm going to be doing a town hall meeting with students from the Carlson School of Management. Um, They have started a company called Endel, which is a company that uh, sells a GPS system, but they're going to have a town hall meeting on living well and safely with dementia. I'm I'm very excited to be part of that. Some of our Memory Cafe uh, members are going to be panelists on that and, and talk about how dementia has affected them and how they're able to still live well with it. Again, um, if you're interested in the Purple Angel Project, please uh, reach out to me, I'd be glad to talk to you. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, check out Alzheimer's Disease International. For clinical trials on tau or frontal temporal lobe, go to Alzheimer'sStudies.com or the Alzheimer's team on Facebook. And if you want a holistic approach and are looking for some alternatives, um, check out the organization Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They are absolutely fabulous, and they really talk about Um, meditation and food and exercise, um, quite a fascinating um, organization. Just wonderful, wonderful people. If you're dealing with certain types of dementia like Lewy body, frontal temporal uh, lobe dementia, uh, remember there are organizations specific to those symptoms as well as the national aphasia which is all about your speech. So, um, you know, those are just important things to to remember. Uh, Our next guest here is Vicki Tapia, and she was a breastfeeding educator for over 30 years and a writer for lactation journals, and she found her energies redirected to others um, in the end of life when both her parents were diagnosed with dementia. She recently retired from the pediatric clinic where she had worked since '89 to focus on writing, and she is really, um, uh, really has written an interesting um, story, and, uh, and book. And uh, you know, I can't wait for her to to talk to us about that. She lives with her husband and her mini Schauser, um in central Montana and I'm excited I'm really excited to have Vicky with us. So welcome Vicky. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Although today I'm in Lansing, Michigan rather than Montana. That, that's right. That's right. You're watching the grandkids, aren't you? Yes I am. Well, oh, very fun. Well tell except, us a little except not right now. <laughs> okay. Yes. Can can you tell us a little bit of, you've, you've got a book called Somebody Stole My Iron. And I love the title. I brought it to the Memory Cafe, um, and I still haven't gotten it back, but they were fascinated by the by the title. What made you pick <laughs> the title for your book? Well, as with all things that went through an evolution, when I started the name, the working title of my book was Plaques and Tangles. Uh which to me described what my mom's brain was doing. But in reviewing that and talking with a number of people, they thought that wasn't a very catchy title. I thought it was. But anyway, Uh um, one of the stories in my book talks about somebody stole my iron the day my mom called me to tell me, to report to me that someone had stolen her iron. And it just jumped out at me in one of my rereadings of my book that there's a great title, and that's how uh-huh. it became the title. So she was convinced someone had come into her apartment and rifled around in her dresser. She kept her iron in her bottom dresser drawer for whatever reason. And they had come in there and taken her iron from her. And we, I said, well, that's fine. I will check into it when I come out to visit you in a couple of days i've spent probably a half hour walking around the facility looking in the lawn, different couple different laundry rooms seeing if i could track it down to no avail the iron seemed to have gone missing completely i never found it um it's left it either probably she loaned it to someone forgot who she loaned it to they forgot who they borrowed it from Or she left it down in the laundry room and who knows what happened to it. But um, she was forever convinced someone had broken into her apartment and stolen her iron. Oh, well, and I think that that's just such a common, common situation um, for caregivers to hear with somebody with dementia that things, you know, things have gotten misplaced or lost. And... um, and so I, I think you know, for our group, anyways, with the uh, with the memory cafe, that was one of the things that really drew them <laughs> to the to the title. <laughs> so I think it was a I think it was a very very good good choice in terms of title because it was fun and um, and uplifting, and um, it made you wonder, you know, what the heck is this really all about? And um, yes, so that. Nice to have the Put a smile on someone's face because this is not if anything it's not something to smile about dementia, but if we can find some humor, it helps to cope yeah, and i think I think humor is very important I mean it's one of those things that gets us through all of life and when uh when illness hits. I don't think it's something that we should walk away from by any, by any stretch. Can you tell us what were some of the signs and, and how did you figure out you know something was a little bit off with your mom? Well, the signs were all over the place, and I disregarded them, as did the rest of the family, just talking them up to old age of forgetfulness and stress. My dad was actually diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, with the dementia component. So when my mom was starting to have mild cognitive impairment, we looked at it as stress, not even considering it might be something more. She received a computer from her granddaughter, she and my dad. And, you know, when she first got it, this was way back in the early 2000s, she did fine. She learned how to use it. She emailed, she did and then all of a sudden it seemed after a couple of years she was having more and more trouble operating the computer, and she just kept saying, I can't make this computer work. And she'd have a technician company local internet company to help her. None of us, the family, the family lived in the same town that she did, so we couldn't help except when we came to visit we'd help. It got to the point where I drew, took sticky notes and drew pictures of everything she needed to do to log on and stuck them in order around the outside edge of her computer. And she took copious notes when we were there. She'd write everything down she was supposed to do. And to me, it was like a fail-safe not There was no chance she wouldn't be able to operate it. And it seems like when I walked out the door, so did her ability to operate the computer. And I couldn't figure out why she couldn't read or at least look at the pictures. And so I disregarded that. Um, we had a big surprise birthday party for my dad. Well, I guess it wasn't a surprise, but we had a birthday party for his 90th birthday. We all, the family, came for a weekend um, to celebrate. My two nieces from the West Coast flew in, and they were the surprise guests. And One of them came to the door and was welcomed by my mom. And the, the other one came to the door, and my mom looked at her and said, Who are you? was her oldest granddaughter. So she she was, I think she, she nearly broke into tears because the grandma didn't know who she was. We disresouted it. We thought, oh, well, stress of the day. And nobody talked about it. We just let it go. So I let it go. We she When I would come to visit over the next year, she'd take me in the kitchen, and she would say, you know, there's some things in my drawer, and I don't know why I have them. And she pulled out an egg beater once and said, why do I have this, or what would I
2: possibly use it for?
1: Another sign something might be off, and I just thought, wow, she is really stressed out. Totally missed it. It's amazing how we can rationalize in our brain, um, attributed to something other than what it might really be. I think when I noticed that she was losing weight, not eating properly, we pulled out some milk out of her fridge that had green mold growing in it, and I. She'd always been such an immaculate housekeeper. Something was up, and I think at that point, after all these different incidences over about a two- or three-year period of time, I started to think,
2: something is not right here. And um, my mom realized something might not be right either because when I suggested she get an evaluation, she did
1: not disagree with me. Most of the time, she disagreed with me. But <laughs> I, I suggested But um, she went in and was evaluated. And, indeed, she had moderate Alzheimer's based on the testing. They did the MMSE test.
2: That was described by your, uh, by Stephanie earlier today. I think it maybe had a different name, but she scored maybe I think she scored an 18 out of 30. So we definitely knew we, we were in trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
2: it's
1: easy to miss. It's easy to overlook the, the clues. So it's so important for people to be aware and have that awareness in their brain so the early detection is so
2: important. There's nothing else to get power of a trainer in place, you were just discussing earlier. Yeah, so,
1: when you when you got the diagnosis, how did you how did you feel about that? How what was your reaction? <clears throat> what was your mom's reaction? My reaction was confirmation that I knew something was wrong. I was somewhat devastated that it had. had it, it was as serious as it was. I thought she might have mild dementia, not moderate dementia. The first time she, she was so good at covering up. We knew something was off, but we didn't know how far she slid. Um, she, she didn't say much. and I, I didn't probe her feelings. She was of the generation that didn't talk about, doesn't talk about feelings so much. So it, it we talked about being on Iricept and she started on that right away. Um, at that time, they were saying it might slow. Alzheimer's disease, the medication, and now they're saying, no, it doesn't slow it. It just helps alleviate the symptoms. So she she just didn't say much. I think maybe there was some relief that she knew what was going on because she, in her own mind, I think realized something was was off, too. Um, My dad, by that time, had had to go into a nursing home by the time she, she, oh, gosh, Shortly around the time the time she was diagnosed, he went into a nursing home because he was getting to be too much of a handful for my mom to take care of, and getting up several times a night to go to the bathroom. And he actually fell on her; they got all tangled up in his walker, and he landed on top of her on the ground. And the next day, she put him in the nursing home, and then called and told me she'd done it. So. Um, She would drive out to visit him every day, and then I would get phone calls from the nursing home telling that my mom, again, immaculately dressed and immaculately clean, would have mismatched earrings, looking like she hadn't combed her hair in several days. And the other part was her driving, um, peeling out of the – squealing the tires and peeling out of the driveway (laughs) in the nursing home, terrorizing the streets. They lived in a very small town, so people were aware of her and kind of kept an eye on her, but I – there had been mortal fear that she was going to kill not only herself but someone else. Driving, I mean, I knew it was getting to the place where I was going to have to make a very difficult intervention because both of them were so resistant to moving away from where they've lived their whole lives. But it was it was scary, very scary. And yeah. I can I can believe that. Now, do you have siblings? I have an older brother. He's uh, mm-hmm. about 15 years older than I am, and he lives uh, away. He was in New Mexico, so he was not available, um, or nor did he wish to be available. <laughs> no, I I understand that. I have uh, two brothers, and you know they were like, well it was kind of like you're the girl and you've got a closer mm-hmm. relationship and you can handle mm-hmm. it and we, tr- we trust you. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 Well, and you, in the the research says if there's a girl and daughter involved, she's the one that's probably going to be doing the caretaking and here we are. So yep. he said he I, preferred I, to remember her the way she was. So, <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, we had that too. Even for um, uh, even when when we went to put the picture in, you know, uh, the obituary, you know, they're like, well, we don't we don't want a late stage picture, you know. They were very mm-hmm. adamant that's not. Mm-hmm. So we went we went with you know, and it's like, how do you pick, you know, mm-hmm. a picture over you know eighty six years of a lifetime and stuff. So we did, we picture. ended up picking one when she was you know. Um, younger, and, and I was okay with that. It's like, but I I, I don't have a hard time looking at, um, you know, the end-stage pictures at all. I just see the beauty of our soul and um, mm. the depth of our relationship. Um, but they don't mm-hmm. have that. And so mm-hmm. um, sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to respect that. I, I, there were times, and I don't know if, if you went through this, but there were times I was angry at my brothers and, you know, trying oh, to yeah. them to be to be different and be more compassionate and you know I really learned you can't teach that <laughs> you know somebody has to you really want. can't mm-hmm. you know they ha- they have to want to be part of that and if they mm-hmm. don't then that's just the way it is and um you know and once you can let go of that i i think anyways for me i found more peace within myself and um and and I was able to, I think, even do a better job focusing on my relationship, you know, with my mom, and not that I hadn't before, but it was—it just brought it to another level when I when I was able to let go. And I don't know if any of our listeners have ever run into that too. Um, sibling situations seem to be a hot topic when it comes to dementia. Um, and in family. That's what I've heard from I've heard from people just in Twitter and Facebook that have gone through the same sort of um set of you know, experiences with their siblings and I so I think it's probably pretty widespread. I I used to think that I I wish I would have had someone and then I've read enough about people who had too too many sibling squabbles over everything that they wish they'd been alone that they said you were lucky you were you got to make decisions on your own so like yeah I guess it's whatever boat you're in at the time I don't know <laughs> yeah the grass is always greener on the other side mm-hmm. you know that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think very a very very true true situation um can you talk talk to us a little bit about, you know, once your mom was diagnosed and, and you being her, her care partner, what were some of the emotions that you dealt with, you know, regarding her situation? Um, you know, we, what was that like for you? Well, boy, I tell you, it, I I ran the gauntlet of emotions. I, I think there was... At the very, very end, there was a joy that I was there with her through the whole experience and that I was able to witness a, a very beautiful death, as I found death could be. That was certainly an experience. I, I felt joyful that I was able to, to go through the process with her. But along the journey, it didn't always feel very joyful to me. In fact, it was downright depressing. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. so sad, watching helplessly as she declined further and further, both of them declined. I was depressed that she kept accusing me of stealing her money. I was oh, depressed that I had no one to, to bounce this off of, by the lack of support, no one to commiserate with that had family history with me. I experienced, the, I experienced so much guilt that people said, stop feeling so guilty to me that was I think I I I shared my guilt with all my friends Um, (laughs) I should have I I mean everything I berated myself I should have found a better facility for them I should have spent more time with them I should have been able to find more ways to enrich their life I should have been more entertaining I should have been present more often so that things didn't get mixed up with it I always left the facility with a lump in my throat, feeling so inadequate in their care. Oh, um, just disappointment in life for them, how their life had to be so awful at the end. Why did they have to go through this? Um, I think that I, for a long time, I mean, I think I'm working my way backwards here, but I was in such denial. I didn't completely understand the disease, and so I had unrealistic expectations. I thought if I gave them enough vitamins, took them to enough doctor's appointments, spent enough time with them, played music, entertained them, kept my mom busy playing bridge, somehow, somehow the dementia wouldn't progress, and we would have a happy time together, and she would, a cure would be found. I thought I expected too much from the Alzheimer's drugs of the rs the amendment she took that it would help more than it did um, so unrealistic expectations and denial and frustration sometimes with the healthcare providers not talking with each other and communicating and things getting mixed up in the chain and the outcome was my mother had a couple serious setbacks because of it, it there's definitely a wide range of, of emotions, um, happiness on the day she recognized me. Mm-hmm. Uh, have I, any, um, <laughs> I don't <know laughs> I missed any feeling at all there. I, it was everything. It was a rainbow. Now, you had mentioned that both your parents were diagnosed with dementia. Was there a difference between your mom and your dad that you saw in terms of, of how it affected them? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Definitely. My mom and I have read that when it comes to dementia, often a personality trait that a person had with when they did not have dementia will only be magnified when they do have dementia. And that seemed to be maybe true for both of them in diverse ways. My mother, who is I would consider a feisty person um became more angry more accusatory more belligerent she acted out she was combative and it got it gradually became worse as time went on my dad was just like a a kitten he he was so docile he he, he was just so sweet so sweet and just compliant, very easy to get along with. The caregivers were all in love with him because he was easy to care for, just sunshine. He had a very sunny disposition. He may not remember who he was, who you were, or what he did two minutes ago, but he was always in a good mood. My mom, on the other hand, (laughs) you always wanted to kind of carefully walk into her room because she might throw something at you. Um, Uh Uh-huh. So, very, very different, yes. And I I felt the frustration in working with her, and actually I had anger, too, along with my mom, because I I was angry with the disease, I was angry with my brother, I was angry with my mom because she kept accusing me of, of things that weren't certainly not true. I spent a lot of time in the beginning trying to reason with her, and explain things to her, and get myself out of hot water. And a lot of energy, a lot of tears, I would end up sobbing on the phone with her, trying to convince her I had not stolen her money, and this went on and on and on, until I finally reached the place where I could let it go, realized this person looked like my mom, but there was an alien inside her. It was not the mom (laughs) that I knew growing up through my adult years. And I could just let it wash off of me. When I reached that place of equanimity and could just listen to her and then redirect the conversation, my life became considerably more mellow, less stressful. But uh, uh, while it wasn't stress-free, it was less stressful. How did you get to that spot? Do you know? It was gradual. I think I had to recognize that this was not really my mom. I mean, it was my mom, but it wasn't my mom any longer. Mm -hmm. And to realize that she was not in charge of her feelings or her outbursts. And recognize, I think it was when I made the transition from being her child to being her parent as often happens in the end. She was my child, and I had to cope with her the way I might cope with a toddler.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Redirect, redirect, change the subject, see it, let her wind down, and then move on and not take it personally and um, realize that it would pass. And I did not Mm -hmm. need to try to
2: reason with her any longer
1: so how did you how did like your family deal with it your your husband and your children um deal with your parents' dementia and your grandchildren no, too and my and my grandchildren were not alive at that time so okay um and none of my children lived in the same city as we did, so they came to visit and I remember my son saying when I told him my mom had slipped a little. And he, after he mm-hmm. visited her, and he said, she hasn't slipped. She's fallen off the cliff entirely. <laughs> so did, they treated her with love and compassion. One of the last things that happened the day before she died was everyone, it, well, it was two days before she died. It was my birthday. Everyone called to tell me happy birthday, and I was able to share the, the phone with her so that they could talk to her and tell her goodbye. Because we knew it was very, very eminent, and they all talked to her, and she was able to listen. And I, you know, she would mumble something, and it often sounded like "love you." That she talked to everybody. It's hard for me to talk about now, and it's been all six years. But she, um, I thought that was wonderful that they were able to do that with her. So I, I believe they treated her, they treated her well. Um, my husband was magnanimous. He was wonderful. Grace. He always treated them with great respect.
2: he
0: never mm-hmm. had anger
1: at all. He was he was really good. He was good to bounce off of him because he kept me he kept me on an even keel. On days it was hard to do that. Yeah, it's a it's a tough, tough journey and and you know, I can hear the emotion in your voice. It's it's not a it's not an easy process um to to lose anybody and you know this disease um is no different um it, you know in and the multiple losses over over time i think people are shocked once they actually um go through this whole process um the amount of loss and the continuousness uh continuousness i don't know if that's the word either um of it, <laughs> it it just you know it it doesn't mm-hmm. end and you never know when it's going to hit. I mean, you it's so it's you can't plan for much of any of it. Um no. in so many ways. Yeah. Um in that I think yeah. the biggest thing that you can take control over is your attitude towards it. And mm-hmm. um and your you know your your reflection of what is it you know how do you want to live your life and, and what do you want to remember what do you want the person with dementia to remember you know what's going to connect you and um, and we do have control over those those choices you know our our anger our frustration or you know creating joy and embracing the simplicity and realizing that life doesn't need to be near as complicated to fill us. Um I think is one of the biggest gifts that that dementia gave me was mm-hmm. realizing mm-hmm. boy i there's very little i need um and the the respect for relationship was huge, absolutely yeah. huge for me yeah and and yeah and i and I always felt respectful, but it just it brought it to a whole different level. You know, it made me mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. more conscious of my choices in in all my relationships, um, mm-hmm. in in all my attitudes, and you know, some days I do better than others with those choices. You know, <laughs> wow, just like would anyone. Well, that for all of us. Yes, <laughs> yes. Some but, some days are easier to maneuver than than other days. Yeah. And the so, the emotions that are still there. the Six years later, I wonder if they'll still be there in another
2: six years. Um, the feelings sometimes of, oh, I could have done that so much better and still thinking <laughs> thinking about it.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think there's always room for improvement. And, again, that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. these conversations are so important because it's it's all really about keeping us connected and sharing what it is that we've learned you know, um, I, I just think it's it's critical for us to share share our insights, um, you know, with this. Uh, no, wow. mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I was going to say how I wish something like this had been available back in two thousand four, two thousand five. I mean, it,
2: yes, this is
1: terrific that there's support networks out there
2: like there are today.
1: Oh, I know. I know. I was. I've been mm-hmm. on this journey for you know 30 years with my mom, and I just,
0: mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. felt like
1: a boat pushed out into the into the ocean, you know, by ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And even though the mm-hmm. Alzheimer's Association was there, um, and I think that they've changed a lot, um, but it it still. I needed more kind of touchy feel in real life. This is how you live mm-hmm. with it. This is what it's mm-hmm. like. I, I needed peers. That that understood yes. not not just people yes. pushing products and support groups. I I, I needed exactly, exactly. And that's why my book happened. Although I wish I could have published it in two thousand five, I be well, it wasn't written then, but that was when I, I couldn't find anything. Um and that's how my book came to be.
0: Yeah. Hoping to
1: reach out to other people. So they wouldn't go through what I went through, and they would get some touchy feely. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I think that that's really very important, uh, more so than I think what people realize. Um, because even you know people that don't uh, that wouldn't consider themselves touchy feely. When you're going through this, you just want somebody who understands. Um, mm-hmm. and, and logic doesn't doesn't always work you know, um, in terms of, well, yeah, I know that makes sense, but, um, that's not what's happening. (laughs) You know, so why, why isn't it happening that way? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, and so that, that, yeah, that makes (laughs) it, uh, makes it real, real interesting to, to say the, to say the least. that's for sure. Um, can you tell us about, you know, towards the end of life, you know, with your mom, she refused to eat. And that's just got to be such a difficult, difficult position, um, <sighs> you know, on multiple levels um, to mm-hmm. to watch that, to accept that, um, even if you're, you know, even if you think logically you're ready to let them go. Um, it it has to just contradict on so many levels. There, there's so many levels I, I relate to very well. In my attempt to honor her stated wishes, I, I, I felt like the bad guy when I talked to the hospice nurse about they were, my mom was, pursing her lips and not wanting to eat most of the time or taking the food that they'd serve her and just smearing it across the table or throwing it on the floor or just putting up barriers all over the place, making it clear. It was clear to me she wasn't wanting to eat. And they would try to coax her with a, a straw or try to force feed her. And, and again, back to the toddler, feeding the toddler who doesn't want to eat, she would... Be angry and turn her head. And I observed this and talked to the hospice nurse who shared, Well, it's to extend her life. And I'm thinking, my mom is saying, making clear to me and has told me before this all got to this place that she was ready to go and she didn't want to be prolonged, prolong her agony. So I said, it, it would be okay to feed her and obviously offer her food but not to force it
0: mm-hmm. Which,
1: she shared my concern the wish she, with the caregivers who then thought I didn't want her to be sad they took it mm-hmm. and when uh, twisted that and just sort of glared at me eventually we got that situated a bit and let her choose that if she wanted to eat and she would occasionally want to eat and she continued to lose weight. Yes, it was it was excruciating. I I was torn. I was torn both ways, respecting her wishes and wanting her to eat. And how do you work your way through that? I don't know. I guess one day at a time. But I wasn't going to force her well, and it's it's hard when you when you just made the comment I could feel your pain when staff thought, "What do you mean you don't want her to eat you you know it's there's judgment
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: t- coming at you, and that's like the last thing that you need is to to feel like you're being judged and all in this whole process um, That's gotta be just devastating when you're just trying to do what's best for your mom. Well, at least, yes. What I thought she wanted, and what, yes, it, it was. It was excruciating to me, and I, I did not care to, to be judged by them that I was trying to starve my mother to death. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, and I I'm think hoping. Some... I'm hoping things are changing. I, I'm confident things are changing. Yes. <laughs> well, did you did you have your mom on hospice? Yes, yeah, she was put on hospice. Mm-hmm. Okay, because even even though on hospice, um, I don't think staff truly understand what that what that means. You know, and it's not about <laughs> <coughs> forcing things on people. It's really, you know, it's about comfort and and it's what about it's comfort. comfort. Yes, I love the and, hospice nurse. That yeah, she interfaced for me. She explained to them. She said, I, "I like your attitude. You have such a healthy attitude about death." She gave me a positive. I, I lived on that that conversation when I felt the judgment all around me from the staff members at the facility. What she said to me uplifted me and, and gave me courage to to come there the next day. You know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's hard. I know. You know, when my mom was on hospice you know, she shouldn't have been put on oxygen, and she was, and it was cutting into her face, and I was really upset with it, and they kept checking vitals, and it's not about heart rate and blood pressure and temperature at that point, you know, it's no. about comfort comforting comfort. connection, you know, yes. um, they were, yes. and so the hospice, you know people were great, um but she was at the nursing home, and for the most part, most of the staff at the nursing home were good but But there was um one nurse in particular that you know this is what us nurses do you know we check the vitals, and this is our role, and it's like no, mm. no, it's not mm. right now, and no, you're not going to give mom a suppository medication to reduce her fever you know it's it's strictly about pain and you know, the oxygen is, you know, used to be thought of as helping, but now they're saying that it, it's more drying and there's more discomfort. So they've learned things and things have changed. And and so it's really, okay. you know, it, it's mm. hard sometimes as a family member to have the strength to make the decisions that you know are aligned with your loved one and what their wishes are. Because yes, it is because you do get those people that don't know your loved one um that well don't understand um or or really have and I'm going to go out on a limb here respect for the dying process and the importance mm-hmm. of it and mm-hmm. understanding that people who are dying can still they're still taking everything in around them you know they might not be able to respond but they can hear every word they can see what's going on um, you know it's just it, there's a whole different connection um that's happening, and that that needs to be respected it needs to be embraced um it needs to be appreciated you know for yes, yes. well for felt what the it caregivers is. they did get on board by the end the last part of it, and they were so so wonderful they they would hold her in their arms and and just comfort her. Um, whenever they had a I mean they it was really they were so, so wonderful. So it 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 came around <laughs> um in the end. I just, yeah I, Oh go mm, ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Okay. I wanted to get back to your, your memoir. Um, you write that early one evening, um, the facility called you to say that your mom might have had a stroke and that her pulse was weak. Can you just tell us what happened over the course of the next couple of days, you know, once you received that call, <laughs> maybe from your side and, and, and sure. your mom's sure. side? Sure, you know, uh, Lori, I panicked. I totally panicked. I had not thought this through very well. I in hindsight, and I was. I gave the order: call an ambulance. I'll meet you at the emergency department, and which I did. And it turns out, after two days of hospitalization and nine thousand dollars worth of tests, EKG and the MRI and every other initial you can think of, that my mom had. Vascular dementia, which we already do. It
0: confirms uh-huh. it.
1: Um, the vascular dementia and also the, well, obviously she had Alzheimer's, but vascular dementia is just another component of dementia. And she she went through all these tests for what I'm not sure why, because I panicked and I, because I didn't think ahead and plan. I would encourage people to, have an idea in their mind what is it that their goal would be. I mean, had they found my mom needed a bypass or a new operation or, I mean, whatever they'd found in all their two days' worth of tests, would I have done it? No, I wouldn't have. My mom was My mom was moving towards the end of life, and I think if I had thought it through carefully... I would have asked them to keep her comfortable and that I would be there in a short time to the facility and I would not have called the ambulance. It didn't prove or do anything, and it was just because I panicked. I think that it's important to think ahead what you'll do. Mm When something like this happens, um, depending on what your parents' wishes are, do they want you to do heroic measures? Do they want to be kept alive at all costs? Have they made that clear to you? Is it in writing? Or did they say, um, if this happens, please don't do heroic measures. I'm ready to go. It's knowing that in advance and remembering it when the crisis happens. I would have done it differently had it happened now. And there was the staff, no one was there to kind of guide you and and say this is most likely what's going to happen if you go. They just took your word. No, no, they just went, no, they just took my word. No, they didn't, Mm. there was no guidance. Yep, I just reacted without thinking it through. Mm-hmm. Which is too bad because I, I think a lot of times, you know, as family members, we just assume there will be guidance. So if I'm making the wrong decision, or if there's more information I need, I will be told. And and mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't always happen. Depending on no. you know who no. who you're talking with, and yeah. and how they view their job, and you just think of the the time, the money, the energy, the panic. Oh. Um, oh, my gosh.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Ins- yeah. That ensued yes. with yeah. all of that. And oh, the health costs of all those tests. I mean, that's, yes. Oh. Yes, then I felt guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you must be Catholic. You have an awful lot of guilt, Vicki.
2: I've been told that many times. It's <laughs> It's funny.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and guilt is just such a, a horrible um, emotion because it, uh, anyways, it is for me. It 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 almost puts me in bondage. You know, I just it, well, it it's sterilizes. not a good emotion. I, I will agree with you. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's, not, it just,
0: mm, it's it just it is bondage.
1: Yes. Yeah, and um, you know, you kind of get in that spiral of woulda, shoulda, coulda instead of just saying. Mm-hmm and believing i made the best decision with the knowledge i had in the time frame that i had it and that and is just, my mantra that is my mm-hmm. mantra yes i Good. made the best decision i could with the information i had at the time yes yeah and then letting mm-hmm. it go knowing you know if mm-hmm. if something happens again i've got another opportunity to make another decision or to make changes but all i can do is do the best with what I had at the time. Yes, and I had I had a lot more chances to make a different decision because she had she kept having those seizures, like events where she would act like she was having a seizure and her pulse would get weak, and then ten minutes later she'd be fine. Mm-hmm. And it could have been little tiny mini strokes, or it's probably a reaction to the antipsychotic medication that she was put on that I'm reading about today has caused some cardiovascular events in people vascular events that they're finding mean, maybe these antipsychotics aren't so good to help with the sundowning um mm-hmm. so we're learning new things all the time <sighs> yep and, yes. and they yeah. ha- and they have well, to let that go too, and just know that there'll yeah. be new findings tomorrow <laughs> we work that's with right them. it changes it changes every day. And we're doing the best we can and learning a lot as we go. So it's all any of us can do. Exactly. Exactly. Keep going, moving it's, on. it's, um, I don't know, it's just such a process. And, you know, the, the guilt and the unknowns are so massive in terms of, uh-huh. you know, making the right decisions and having the right knowledge and, you know, at the right time, it just, it it. It never seems to never seems to end at no, all. No, it doesn't, and and we can't have all the knowledge at our fingertips at every moment. And all the changes and advances, and again, it goes back to what you said a few minutes ago: we're making the best decision we can with the information at hand and moving yeah. forward with with it um and so, not to beat ourselves up. I think it's common for a lot of us to beat ourselves up. Or maybe it's only me. But <laughs> a No, a I I is? think I think it's I think it's a a pretty pretty standard thing. I had a friend mm-hmm. um tell me she said I I want to buy a word from you. And I said, "What?" And she <laughs> says, I, "I would like to buy a word from you." And I said, "Well, what word?" And she said, "Should." Oh. And she said, "And when you're ready, I'll purchase could from you." <laughs> and so I she like bought the sense. word. And she, so she gave me a nickel, and she bought my word should. And she said, "You can't use that anymore." I'll she said, "You can always buy." She said, "I, I, you can always buy it back from me, and the price will never go up." But I would like to take that word from you and buy that so that you choose not to use it. Wow. What a wise friend. I know, I know. Mm. It was it was a woman I met actually at a conference. I had never known her before. Um, and I didn't think that I said it that much, but I think it was just the, the maybe one or two sentences I said. She mm. could feel my guilt. She could mm-hmm. feel, you know, and mm-hmm. and knowing that we can all be better not using that, not beating ourselves up. Um, knowing that oh, we did that do so true. did yeah. do our best. So mm-hmm. yeah, feel, any mm-hmm. any of our listeners, feel free to to take Pauline's idea and you know, if you have a friend or family member or loved one that is using the shoulda woulda coulda, um, purchase <laughs> purchase their words, <laughs> and, and if you catch them using it, remind them that you know it's not in their vocabulary anymore. You've taken it. <laughs> ah, I love that idea. Yeah, That's fantastic. I, I guess I'll sell, I'll sell guilt to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Um, what kind of support networks did you have, you know, for yourself and in your family going through this? Well, my husband certainly, he would be the primary recipient of my meltdowns <laughs> and uh, giving me support and straightening me on back onto the path, and he he was exceptional. My children were, were wonderful. I, I would often find myself, I'd leave the assisted living facility and I'd find myself on the phone with one of my children. I needed to hear something positive. I needed to hear about somebody with life that was looking forward to, to something that had a future. And that was really, really important to me to connect with my, my kids um, because that, there was where I had been, there was only one way we were going and it wasn't toward life. My friends... I could call upon them to a certain extent, but not on a regular basis because it was not something I wanted to burden my friends. I, I would burden my husband and my kids, but I I could not do that very often to many of my friends. Um, so I tried a support group, but I felt like I was doing all the supporting at the support group. I don't know why that was, um, mm-hmm. because I talk a lot maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, or I listen a lot. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I found people asking me a lot of questions whenever I'd go to support groups. And I, it wasn't feeding me back the same way um so that didn't work as well I, I attempted to read as much as i could contact the alzheimer's association and i made friends with the executive director of the alzheimer's association in our state and I, I read watched did everything i could and it still took a long time to sink in i think that there wasn't a lot of internet support at least not in my awareness i if these groups existed on the internet i didn't know about them i mean you weren't out there at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. when did when when did you begin? Um, it's been almost three years now. Um three years. with the okay. radio show. Yeah. And I started mm-hmm. the blog back in oh nine. So about 09. five years so, on that. So. Yeah, just right. My mom died in oh eight. So it was on the cusp. Um but memory people and um all the different Forget Me Not, and those different groups that are out there now, I think are so phenomenal because there's always somewhere you can go at any time of the day or night and find somebody that will listen and you can, even though you may be typing your thoughts, you're still going to get a response or or at least some positive reinforcement for what you're doing or ideas if you need it. It's marvelous. And the things you were mentioning in the first hour about all the, the puzzles and the music and all those things that I desperately wish I could have found to do for my parents. I just felt like I was looking for things for them to enrich their lives, and there was nothing, and I was not very creative on my own, I'm afraid. So it's just magnificent that there's all these things now. Yeah, it's, Hmm. it's nice to have the conversations to, I mean, like I said, there's so many resources out there and nobody knows that they're even there, you know, and so Uh we're still horrible at connecting the dots, you know, connecting people to, uh, to this information. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I, um, created Alzheimer's Speaks, um, the resource directory, um, was exactly for that reason, um, And, you know, that's free for people to be able to go ahead and input, um, you know, if it's a book, if it's a video, if it's a website, if it's a business, it doesn't make any difference. But, um, you know, for people who are listening, you can go up to the header on the Alzheimer Speaks website and then go to partnering options, share that you care. And you can find out uh, you can register as a member and then you can go ahead and input information um, into uh, into the resource directory, because um, I I just don't think that one person or one organization should be the judge and jury of of what we all need. Our needs are so different, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in our. Our, our resources, our family dynamics, all of that is just, um, it's so important um, to be respectful of that and to give people all the options to let them make the choice that, um, that they need to, let them have the conversation, um, you know, to help them through this process because it's very difficult um, and not not anything that anybody wants to, you know, sign me up for this one, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that would be a very short line. Yep, exactly. Well, I just want to thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, Is there any, you know, one or two tips that you'd like to share um, quickly before the show ends here um, with our audience Um, if they're walking down this path? I think that having a support network is crucial for your mental health. It's whatever way you want to go about having it. Um, talking is great. Uh, being mm-hmm. able to share ideas is fantastic because it it helps the journey to lighten the load a little bit. And I think early early awareness. Be aware of what's going on in your loved one's life and be cognizant of changes that are happening and catch them early rather than late. I think that getting in clinical trials sooner rather than later, getting legal affairs in order sooner rather than later are all extremely important in the journey. And mostly, I guess, to be an advocate for dying with dignity and making this whole process less of an ordeal and more of an experience uh, that can be joyful as a person is moving on to the next phase. We have a lot of taboos and thoughts that that maybe will evolve over t- as time goes on, and people will become more accepting of letting people go when it's time, and not try to hang on to them. Being able to be okay with that inside themselves and realize that this is just another phase that we all pass through, let the dying person have their dignity, keep the oxygen mask soft, keep the force, food force feeding away from them, um, and hopefully no breathing tubes or intravenous fluids, things like that. Mm-hmm. Having the having the conversations early with your your loved ones to know precisely what they expect out of the final turn. Yeah, I, I I love the whole dying with dignity um, aspect. I I just I think we need so much more education. We are so wrapped in fear, and Absolutely. it does not do anybody justice. Um, you know when we are when we're so fearful. Um, you know there's so much beauty and there's so much honor to to that you will feel being with someone who passes. You know if oh my God. yes yes something it, my brother missed that I will always think was such a wonderful with both my parents I was with them when they died what a, mm-hmm. a beautiful moment absolutely beautiful yeah. I know I know not all death is that way. But, for my parents, it was that way, and that's the only yep. people that i have been with so yeah mm-hmm. and I, I i think there's you know there's we can find the beauty if we look for it, um even in a- even in a horrible death, you know one that's that's painful um there there is beauty there in bringing someone peace,
0: mhm, mhm,
1: watching their express yes to tranquil. Yeah. They're, they're no longer suffering. my mom suffered greatly. Mm-hmm.
0: <sighs> yeah. My dad, of
1: course. My dad made it easy the way he passed away, but my mom it was the way she lived their life. Yeah. <laughs> well, she stayed mm-hmm. stayed true to herself then. Well, Vicky, I really appreciate you um you know being with us today and sharing your your story. Um, um, you know, with us. Um, what is the best way for people to to get a hold of you and to get a hold of of your book? Well, certainly through the publisher, Preclaris Press, and my website. If you would like to go to com, you can reach the publisher. You can also find my book on Amazon. And it's um, give at this. There is still an opportunity to go on to Goodreads. I'm giving three books away on April 20th, and you can go in and sign up for free to be considered for a free book. And okay. And you can email me. Um, you can email me at, at com. Wonderful. Well, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and, and having a discussion. Um, the discussion. The book—I I, I, just—I love the title. <laughs> Someone stole huh? my my iron. Oh, well, thank um, you, Lori. I, I just—you uh, know—I think it's uh, wonderful that people like you are taking the time to share share their stories. Um, it's it's very important to all of us. Um, on this journey to, to again learn from one another so I wish you the best of luck in uh, sales with your book and um, again I can't thank you enough for, for being part of the show today. Thank you very very much for having me. I'm very appreciative to be able to have this opportunity to share with people so I thank you. Okay we will we will talk soon thanks Vicki. Have a great week okay? You too Lori. Take care bye bye by now. So in wrapping up the show again um, I would encourage you to, to go ahead and buy that book uh, Someone Stole My Iron by Vicki Tapia um, or to reach out to Stephanie Erickson who was our first guest and you can get her at EricksonResource.com um, EricksonResource.com that's, uh, or Stephanie at EricksonResource.com and she was the one who was talking about decision-making with dementia how do you know uh, who should make decisions and when and how do you get your ducks in a row and she's got some free tools on her website um, that you can you can get from her as well again if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association uh, check out Alzheimer's uh, disease international you'll be able to find one that is closest to you Uh, for a holistic approach Check out Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They have some wonderful tools and products there. And then don't forget about the Lewy Body Dementia Association and the Frontal Temporal Lobe um, Association as well as the National Aphasia Association. For clinical studies, um, there's a new one for the frontal temporal lobe uh, through Alzheimer'sStudies.com. Go to Alzheimer'sStudies.com. They also still have the Tau trial open, which is in its third uh, third trial, I believe. And don't forget about Music First with Choral Health, and that's C O R O Health. Um, there you can get music prescriptions to change your mood, or those with dementia. They have, um, and remember, music works on on all of us. Puzzle with me with Jane, um, or Jiminy Wicket, the intergenerational croquet program. Uh, last, uh, I want to remind you again that we are having our dementia chats this afternoon. And we would love for you to be part of that. Um, we will start at 3 pm. Eastern time. You can just go to the front page of alzheimerspeaks.com and just sc- scroll down to dementia chats. Uh, one will take you to more information another one will pop you right into the uh, right into the category itself um, and you'll be able to, to uh, to get their ASAP so we'd love to have you join us on that note I'm going to go ahead and sign out and start getting ready for the webinar have a blessed day everybody and we'll talk to you next week hi everyone this is Meredith from the senior fitness with Meredith podcast where I discuss all things for seniors from fitness your health and wellness journeys